welcome everyone. We have people joining us from four continents, um, so many different sorts of schools and places. So it's really exciting to now share this, what will be a, a just over a 45 minute journey to what I believe, I firmly believe is fundamentally the most important way we can look at supporting and building, developing positive mental health and well-being in our staff rooms, in our in our classrooms, on our playing fields, in our entire unique school context and communities. Why do I say it's so important? Because it is an appreciative systemic approach. And I'm so excited to see so much research coming out now supporting systems development in schools and so many people getting on board with these ideas. It's appreciative, it's about growth, it's about finding what's working and really bringing and building that. So it feels like development and it feels energizing rather than strategies or ideas that are more about doing a complete U-turn or having to feel like, oh my gosh, we've got it all wrong, we've got to do it differently. It's so important because it's equitable and inclusive. So it's not just about supporting those that engage with the program or the strategy. It's about supporting all staff and all students in the uniqueness of their own context. So I'm going to take you on this journey with three pathways, with three steps. So the first path is to think about well, why contextual well-being and how is that different from just well-being per se? Why is that so important? And with that, I want to introduce you to the idea of understanding that although we experience our well-being as individuals within each of us as individuals, our well-being is created within the spaces between us, within the quality of the relationships we have with others. As my very good friend and very wise educator John Hendry says, it's all relational and it absolutely is, but it's more than our relationships between people. It's our relationship to groups as a whole. It's our relationship to the spaces we find ourselves in, to the buildings of the school, the classrooms, the shared spaces, the corridors. It's our relationships to the policy and practice that guide behavior and direct us to, towards perceived measures of success within a school. It's our connection to social norms, to the aspects of school life that tell us how things are, what the culture feels like, whether we can trust each other, whether we're kind here, whether we look after each other. So it's our connection to these aspects of context and the way our context connects to us that matters. And this leads us nicely into the second pathway on this journey, which is to ask, well, why is this so important to consider? Why do we need to consider this more social viewpoint of understanding well-being? And what does that mean for all of the programs and strategies that schools are spending considerable resources and amounts of money on right now. And within this pathway, I hope that you will join me in understanding why so many of these programs and strategies are not only hard to maintain and sustain because they're so resource heavy, but are actually not working very well 
because they might be across context or within context, but they don't actually address context. And so that leads us on to the third and final pathway towards the end of our journey. And that's to say, well, what should we do about this? How does healthy context feel? What does it look like? How does it, can we experience it, develop it in each of the sort of main domains of a school context? Where should we begin? Um, and so that sort of leads me to the very end of the journey. And I want to finish by really sort of bringing us around to what I think is a very sort of optimistic and energized finale, which is to say that as you will sort of see as we unravel here, that our support of well-being is actually already there. So I have been spending the last now two years really getting involved in working more long term, more in depth with schools to help them develop their unique context. And in every single school I've worked in, the answers are already there, but they'll be there just in small pockets, maybe overlooked, not given priority. So in many ways, we're about working and understanding what works within your context so we can broaden and build the things that are great so that we can prioritize them and make them fundamentally important. But let's begin by rewinding and thinking about that first pathway, which is very much about understanding contextual well-being and what that term even means. So to explain that, I want to start by thinking about who we are as people. So we're born in, in the world um, with a certain DNA, genetic, biological makeup that means that physically, psychologically, we're, we're unique. We have unique temperament, we have a unique character, and our unique humanness um, is going to impact how we interpret and see the world. And it's also going to impact how that world, how the context in which we find ourselves is going to treat us and, and relate to us. But as soon as we start interacting with the world, as soon as we start relating with it, we start to develop as a person, as a social being. From the very moment we are born, we're getting a sense that we are separate to other people and starting to immediately understand what it is to be loved, where our place is in the world and how we might love and relate and connect with others. We learn preferences, we learn morals, we learn virtues, we learn the language of our local context. And as we develop that language, we use that language to develop our beliefs, our thought processes, our attitudes, our ideas about the world, whether it's simply whether we like pizza or not, even what pizza is, depending on where in the world you're growing up. Um, our political stance, our integrity develops, our sense of value develops, and these are all social layers building upon each other. So in this sense, we are socially created as people. When all of those layers from that innermost sense of who we are, all the way through our beliefs, our attitudes, our thoughts, our feelings, to how we actually present and interact with the world, when there's a congruence, a harmony, through all of that, then we feel like we're being really authentic. And the connections that we make feel deep and meaningful 
and we feel included, um, part of our context in a positive way. And that really is what having a sense of belonging is all about. Moreover, when we uh, have that authentic connection with our context, because our context is meeting our needs, it's accepting us, embracing us, allowing us to have voice, to develop meaningful relationships, to feel growth and competency, we also are more likely to really engage in the things we do within our context. So within a school context, that means you're more likely to engage in your learning and your social development and your emotional development. So contextual well-being is a way of describing the sense of belonging and engagement that we experience when we are connected to a healthy context, a context that meets our needs to feel that we are deeply, authentically connected to the world around us. Contextual well-being is therefore distinct in a sense from well-being per se, as you could say, well-being is often looking at the elements of us as individuals in terms of how we might operate in the world when we feel well. So, for example, when we have good contextual well-being, when we feel belonging and engagement within our social context, we're more likely to act mindfully. We might be more appreciative of the things we do. We might be more curious about life. So contextual well-being really is a nod to the fact that we are people, we are social beings, and our schools are social systems. They're not just sort of lots of individuals pushed together. They're systems that operate in which everybody contributes to those systems, those contexts, and those contexts influence and contribute to everybody. As Tennyson said, I am part of all I have met. So true. So why is this important to know? Um, why am I talking about from a sort of philosophical, social psychological viewpoint about well-being? Well, simply put, because what we are doing with our individualistic perspective, which is largely based on a more sort of clinical model, is just not working very well. So in clinical psychology, it can be really helpful when you have therapy to actually remove yourself from a context and to be um, to talk with someone who allows you to feel that you are safe and guides you to a self-realized way forward. Whereas when we're looking at supporting contextual well-being, the way that we experience well-being within our relationships, we want to do that in a contextual way, in a way that builds those healthy relationships, that builds and brings out the best in a context. Mental health today is terrible in young people. And so it sort of feels like we've never done so much to support well-being in schools, and yet we've never been so much drowning in poor mental health. So recent figures in Australia suggest that nearly one third of adolescents are struggling with a diagnosable mental health condition. And that doesn't count for all of those who might not have a diagnosable condition, but they're certainly not thriving. Before COVID, that was about a quarter. And in primary schools, elementary schools, that was one in six prior to COVID. And that also has risen since we had a pandemic. These Australian statistics are very much mirrored 
in the rest of the developed world. So they are pretty much reflected in statistics we're seeing across Southeast Asia, in the UK, in the States, in Canada, in New Zealand. And they're really worrying. If we just had a very small percentage of young people who are struggling, we could perhaps suggest that the context in, of our schools is actually really healthy, but one or two people are struggling to connect with that context and we might want to give them very specific support. But when it's such a huge minority who have clinical mental health concerns, and in fact, you could say a majority who are stressed and overwhelmed, that really is time to wake up and address context in and of itself. And I should say at this point that these statistics and indeed any other research I mentioned, I'm gonna put references to in beneath the recording of this webinar when we put the recording online. So you can look further into that then. Of course, you could also read Contextual Wellbeing. So, why is it that we have such poor mental health when we have all of these programs? What are these programs really not doing? Well, maybe a way to think about that is to firstly sort of consider who is it that's struggling the most? And if we start to look at differences between young people and our very sort of diverse populations that we have, we can start to see that some differences in schools are not treated merely as continuums of difference, like you could have blonde hair or brown hair, but it's sort of the same level of value, but they're rather seen on hierarchies where being different at one end of the continuum is actually seen as lower status or lower value. And as soon as you define yourself or identify strongly with a difference that's seen as lower value or lower status than being at the other end of the continuum, you're more likely to feel excluded from the context, to not want to connect to the context. And exclusion means you're going to have poor connections within that context. You're not going to have a sense of belonging and you're going to have poorer well-being and possibly poor mental health. For example, we know that um, neurodiverse young people, um, we know that um, those who are not cisgendered, heterosexual, uh, white minorities, racial minorities, these are all ways that we strongly identify ourselves in life. And if you are in, at those ends of what should be horizontal continuums, you often experience exclusion and lower status. So it's really important to say, it's not differences per se, that cause poor mental health. It's the way our context um, reacts to those differences and the status and exclusion that comes. So this is a contextual issue and it's really fueled by a lack of equity and inclusion in our schools. We sort of reached a point in time where the majority of school populations are, are pretty diverse nowadays. And there's a sort of a celebration of diversity, but we often are still confusing um, integration with inclusion. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to temperament and character. So we're finding, for example, that young people who are very sensitive in nature or more introverted are seen as less valuable than those who are less sensitive or more extroverted. And we see that in the way that the school context supports those at that other end of the continuum 
the more extroverted end of the continuum more fully. And even sort of within the sort of very fabric of our society, we find that when young people are very shy or quiet, that there's a sort of sense of wanting to make them more confident, to integrate them rather than include them. So we can see that context really, really matters. And so many of the programs in schools, as I said at the beginning, they stand separately to context. So they're like sort of bubbles of ideas about well-being that might be really, really well researched. Like we know, for example, there's a great link between appreciation and gratitude and feeling well. But this sort of bubble of ideas about well-being are not being internalized or taken on board by young people because they're not experiencing it within the context of their daily life. And you can't really just sort of tell someone how to be well. You can't sort of, otherwise, you know, and no one would need more than one therapy session, to be honest. You'd go to your therapist, you'd say, well, I'm really upset about this relationship, or this has happened, or this. Your therapist would say, we just need to do A, B, and C. Thank you very much. Goodbye. It doesn't work like that. We need to realize and unpack what's happening for ourselves in terms of our own connections and work with experience within the context of our lives to build healthy connections and find a way forward. So a great example I thought I'd give you, which is my favorite all-time example, is that of the DARE program, which if any of you are watching from the US, you might well know this program. It was actually quite old now. It, it was came into fruition during the 1980s after Nancy Reagan gave um, a very well-known speech um, in support of her husband, Ronald, who was president at the time, um, his war against drugs. And in her speech, she suggested that young people in the US needed to learn to just say no to drugs and alcohol. Uh, her speech inspired the Californian Police Department to come up with the D.A.R.E. program in which they would go into high schools and they would go in once a week for 17 weeks and talk to young people about the dangers of alcohol and drugs and get them to role play different scenarios in which they would just say no. The program was incredibly loved and incredibly popular, so much so it was rolled out into 80% of state high schools in the US at a cost of nearly 3 billion US dollars. Over time, as you can imagine, there was a lot of research looking at the impact of this program and all of it found one thing in common. It all found that the program was actually completely ineffective. In fact, in some schools, adolescents and students were found to drink more alcohol after the program than before it. Why? How could such a well-loved, widely spread program fail so dismally? For a number of reasons. Firstly, simplistically, you could say, it doesn't matter how much you learn to say no within the classroom, if it's cool to say yes in the rest of your life. But more than that, it really sort of shines a light on the fact that we only really internalize messages, engage with learning when we have that sense of belonging, when we feel connected to our communities. So the students who felt really connected to their school communities might well have really embraced some of the messages of the D.A.R.E. program. But those who were the most vulnerable because they felt excluded were the most likely to go 
seeking out groups elsewhere, maybe groups that had a focus on substance abuse or alcohol or drugs. So, and were far less likely to internalize any learning or messages. So really a program like this, like any wellbeing program or health program, rarely reaches the people who really need it the most. And finally, on the DARE program, I think it's a great example. It really shows us that a program can be enormously loved and popular. That doesn't mean it works. And I'll just say there, positive education and leave it at that. Two other programs I just want to briefly touch on before I move on to sort of move us forward in time a little bit. And more recently, the SEAL program, which was social and emotional aspects of learning program, um, which has been very popular in the UK. And it was, I did actually have good success in primary schools, but then was rolled out into high schools without an awful lot of consideration of that differing context and differing needs of young people. So when it was first researched across 22 high schools, it was found not to be working. When that was looked into it a little bit more in detail, it was found that many of the teachers trying to sort of support this program by delivering social and emotional learning were not actually um, exhibiting social and emotional competencies they were teaching. We can't blame them for that because like so many teachers, they're often overloaded, overworked, short of time. And, you know, then they're trying to be counselors and psychologists and they want to be great teachers. Um, so I'm not blaming them for that. But nonetheless, it really shows that if you don't experience something, it's hard to internalize something. That has now been addressed and the program has been found to be more successful since. And that's important to say. And then the final one I just want to touch on which is very much used today, is the Penn Resiliency Program. Um, and this is um, Seligman's um, flagship program, although he, didn't, he wasn't the one that actually developed it. And it's been used so widely, again, especially in the US, but also in Australia and around much of the world. Um, it was rolled out across the US Armed Forces at great expense and also to a lot of schools. And yet, a multitude of research, in fact, recent meta-analysis has found that it simply doesn't really work to reduce anxiety or depression in those in young people and to allow them to be more resilient and the same actually for those in the armed forces. And that really is a call to say resilience isn't something we can sort of stockpile in advance and then wait for something bad to happen and then we can be resilient but rather it is an experiential contextual thing. It's about building connections within context so we have a strong sense of ourselves. So when something goes wrong, i.e. a connection falters or is broken completely and we feel that sense of loss, we still have a strong sense of who we are in the world. So simply put, we need to really thinking about shifting our context. So at best, it's more in line with some of the messages of these programs. So I, I think it's important to say at this point, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't have any programs or strategies in schools, but rather they need to reflect a healthy context and contextual wellbeing, which is our priority, and then bring in extra supports and ideas to support that. Don't think you can sort of stand them alone without paying attention to what's going on in the context, or else you end up with a sort of Mindfulness Monday program in a context that's full of overloaded homework and tests and competition. 
And you can see the difficulty there. Or we end up with attention on, say, for example, growth mindset. And Carol Dweck's work is amazing. It's, it's great. But if you bring in ideas of growth mindset into a context that is all about outcomes, what grade you got, how you did, even to the point where we're making process into outcome by, say, handing out prizes for effort, um, then that completely minimalizes and confuses people about what a growth mindset even is. Um, one final one, which is so important to mention, self-determination and self-direction. There's no point talking about how important it is to have agency and voice, to have healthy relationships and a sense of competency. The three core needs that are described so fully and, and beautifully in Richard Ryan and Edward Deasy's self-determination theory um, there's no point talking about these or giving students voice or giving them agency or setting up the student representative council if you aren't looking at the broader context. Do your students feel safe to say what they think? Have you looked at psychological safety? Are you allowing people of all sorts of differences and diversity to have a say in their own way? Are your relationships based on mutual respect and understanding and kindness or caring without hierarchies that say some people are a bit more special than others? Are you allowing everyone to develop a sense of competency or are you saying we actually have this special sort of gifted people over here we're going to give lots of creative opportunities to and not those over here? So these are challenging things because our context of our schools are, are so set up in, um, in ways that are judgmental, hierarchical, competitively based, and very much focused on outcomes. But I can say very clearly that if your context is there because of history, it's never gonna make history, not in a positive way anyway. So fundamentally, I feel that the, the most important thing we can do as an ideal for sort of starting to shift our context is to think about what is this school about? What are the measures of success we want for young people in a school environment? And I ask people this question. So if I give this talk to parents or to teachers and I ask them about how much academic outcomes matter as a first question, they will tell me, yeah, they matter. And absolutely they do. You know, numeracy, literacy, um, academic rigor, learning. I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't had all of these aspects of my education. But everybody I've asked so far, and that's an awful lot of people in an awful lot of places, will agree with me in saying that even more importantly is connection, is how we experience our life, is supporting growing confidence, a sense of hope, self-determination, a sense of purpose, meaning, healthy relationships, the sense of value. These are the things that ultimately matter the most for young people's education. If we could just shift our schools to reconsider their ultimate measure of success that is in line with what we actually as individuals all want, we could do great things. And that means shifting from thinking about being the best or even being your personal best, which is still very much about an outcome, to simply being connected, being engaged, 
being interested in what you do. And this is not throwing outcomes away because the more that we are connected, the more that we are contextually well, the more that we feel accepted, authentically ourselves, engaged and interested in our lives, the better the outcomes actually are. It makes sense. So if we could just shift to focus on connection, and this has to be more than what well-meaning adults say to kids. This has to be something we see in the broader context of our schools. So it needs to be in the physical spaces. We, can't, we have to say that everybody matters within those physical spaces, that it's community and connection that matter, not the trophy cabinet or the leadership board. It has to be in the norms, in the policy and the practice. We don't have some sort of special class of kids that all get creative opportunities to build their competency and others don't. This stuff really matters. So if we could start by thinking about those measures of success, we could be leaders. You could all be in schools that felt comfortable in knowing that the kids in your school get great academic outcomes, but they also actually experience ongoing well-being. So what I want to do now is to, to, to move to the third part of this journey and that is to start to think about well this is all very great but how do we start thinking about understanding unpacking and developing bringing out the best in our own unique context on the understanding the contexts certainly vary from school to school even though we all have those same fundamental needs and to do this beyond thinking about that measure of of success I want to sort of divide context into these four domains that I have mentioned a few times. And this is not to say that, that there are very four separate domains of context. Context is all very intermingled and interrelated. You know, our relationships with each other are gonna impact social norms, which is gonna, our policy and practice is gonna guide norms and what we do in this space. So what we do in this space is gonna guide culture. It's all very intermingled, but nonetheless, by distinguishing and thinking about each domain of context separately, it allows us to be quite pragmatic in our approach to building healthy context and unpinning what really works. So those four domains are the physical space, the policy and practice, social norms, and people, the relationships with people. So let's start with physical space. So, an absolutely easy way of thinking about how you can develop and bring out the best context here is to think about nature. We are all hardwired to connect really deeply with nature. Um, kids especially, they can learn so much if they are given opportunity to play and explore in nature. They learn about risk-taking, um, how to fail, how to win, how to feel successful, how to navigate um, a chaotic and natural world. But I understand absolutely that many schools are built in urban areas or with minimal resources or with huge numbers of people coming in and they just don't have a huge natural environment in which they are set or even beyond the school gates. But nonetheless, there is still so much we can do to make sure that nature is a part of everyday life and supporting contextual connection. So simply put, um, even a high school classroom that has multiple users, used by multiple people, could have a bamboo tree from Ikea. 
here's my example here. Um, you can bring in in primary school classrooms where um, where there's much more ownership over the class. You can have herb gardens. You can have plants and that need watering. You have plants that need watering throughout a school and give students responsibility to keep those plants alive and nurture them. In the natural environment, we can make sure that we decorate and use natural materials and colors and really understand the more we can have natural light and, and temperature and the better that we will do because the more connected we feel. Beyond that, thinking about the physical building, what's really important here is to start thinking, does the space in which we find ourselves, and here when I'm working in a school, I always go on a tour of the school, preferably um, taken by some of the students who tell you all sorts of interesting and useful things. And when I walk around a school, it gives me a good sense of what matters to the school, what really matters in how they define success, even if the individual people within the school would say something different. So here we're looking at how the community is used, how public spaces are used. In better resource schools, there'll often be a sort of nowadays, a shiny well-being building um, or well-being resource. And it's really important that this is not just sort of the reflection of some sort of architect's dream, but rather there is actual buy-in to that building with those that use it. So this is about having discussions with people who use spaces. So if, for example, you have two classes in an open plan room, how do you talk about sharing that space well, rather than just competing and getting louder and louder against each other? So think about community continually. And most importantly, think about what you put on the wall. Does the messages you put on the walls in your reception, outside the gym, on your classroom walls and your, on the doors of your classrooms, do these messages say community and connection is what matters most here? Or do they say, actually, it's outcomes? And I've been to school, especially I think in a lot of Hong Kong and Singapore, it's quite popular to put trophies on your desk, to put merit cards on your classroom doors. That's saying, actually, it's outcomes that count. Or think about the number of receptions I've been into, in which case you, um, you have uh, a trophy cabinet or a leadership board. And you might say everybody is welcome, but you're also saying outcomes is what gets you a special place in the school. Um, or think about sticker charts or, um, <clears throat> or sort of like um, or prize boards, or even worse than that, the flip side of that is what I call the sort of name and shaming boards, like peg charts or traffic light systems that are sort of saying all the time, it's about judgment, it's about control, it's about behavior, as opposed to it being relational and quality of relationships and meeting people's needs. So physical space is really, really important. And I will say that, you know, obviously I'm just touching on each one of these domains and there's so much I could say about each one, but hopefully I'm highlighting some important points to get people thinking and celebrating the things that work well and maybe thinking about some of the things that do less so. So the second thing I want to talk about is policy and practice. Um, so in an ideal world that supports measures of success, being about contextual well-being, being about connection, about community, about engagement, about belonging, then our policy and practice would always have those measures of success in mind. 
Whereas in reality, so many of our policies and our practices in schools are actually very much focused on compliance and control and judgment of others with a real focus on outcomes being everything. So whether it's the school behavior policy, the uniform policy, um, the, the practice about giving homework out or, the, or the, the practice of giving merit cards in assemblies or whatever it might be, I ask you to reconsider that in terms of firstly, is this supporting a safe community in which everyone has agency and a voice? Secondly, is this supporting cohesive relationships between everyone? Or is this actually breaking those relationships down because people are judging each other and always consistently being forced to compete against each other? So in this sense, I'd say be really wary of forced competition in schools. Everyone, you know, the idea that everyone has to be in the race, has to enter the debating competition, etc. I will say here that I'd have nothing against competition, healthy competition, competition you voluntarily want to participate in because you're in the sports team, because you love debating, can be a fantastic way to build connection, to build resilience, to learn how to win and fail and just have fun. But forced competition sets up hierarchies, it sets up judgmental behavior, it breaks down those beautiful connections we wanna build. So thinking about policy and practice, thinking about autonomy and agency, thinking about relationships, and also <clears throat> thinking about competency. Does your policy and practice support growing competency in all members of your community with an expectation that every child can achieve high learning outcomes if given the correct support. So all too readily, we try and sort of group young people according to their potential, the, the sort of academic potential that they arrive with in the school. Academic potential is absolutely a contributory factor towards being competent, but it's only a small factor. More importantly, it's about engaging in the process of learning, being curious, having self-belief, having self-efficacy, um, having a voice, being able to ask the right questions, showing up, being, being present, feeling relaxed because you feel safe and you belong. So policy and practice is to meet competency needs for everyone. And the, as long as we have gifted or special streams in our schools, we are diminishing our support of young people, the majority of young people's sense of competency, because from the moment they start school, especially high school, they're being, many of them are being told, up to 95% are being told, you're not at the top, you're not the most academic person here. So I realize that could be a challenging comment to make, but I really encourage you to think about it. Social norms. So in an ideal world, policy and practice leads into normative behaviors. So as much as policy and practice is very much about the sort of written down rules and the very overt talked about practices within a school, the social norms are the true guides of behavior. We don't often talk about them, but they have huge power. So when we 
arrive in a new context, we sort of use social norms, we internalize them, and that teaches us how to behave in a certain situation. It gives us a sense of the vibe, the culture. So you could be in a school where it's normal to trust others or to have honesty or have respect, whether it's where it's normal to listen when a teacher speaks. And these are all very desirable norms for building great connections and meeting the needs of everyone within the context. Of course, you could have other norms that says, oh, nobody gets on with the teacher here, or we don't do very well at school, or learning's boring, or all sorts of other unhealthy norms as well. So developing social norms is another big subject, but what I think is probably the most useful thing I can say to you now is firstly to really start to consider what are your values as a school? What behaviors would you like to see as normative within your school community? And to talk in staff about that and to dig down and identify those values by thinking about what emotionally resonates with you. What are the sort of good moments in your day-to-day -day life that really matter for you? And then start to make sure that everybody is aware of those so that people become aware of what's normal. And then most importantly beyond that, is to work to build cohesion to cohesion cohesion. Because when you have a sense of belonging, when you feel that sort of social glue binding you to others, you internalize the norms of a classroom, a school environment. When you don't feel like you belong, or it doesn't make sense to you, or you feel a bit excluded for whatever reason, you don't internalize the norms and they don't necessarily make any sense to you. So in that sense, you know, we really want to develop that sense of this, what is normal within a school through experience, in an experiential way, through our messaging in every sense. So easy examples, don't, don't say we're going to have a norm of being honest here and then and trustworthy and then maybe lock all the students you know, out of the toilets at lunchtime or out of the classrooms. You know, these things contradict each other. So think across all of those domains. And I'll very quickly mention um, one lovely example of a, of a primary school, an elementary school in India, who brought in um, an honesty shop into their school, which was actually a stationary shop. And it was up to the students to bring in the money for the items they wanted, leave it in the bowl and take the items they wanted. And it was completely unsupervised. The shop was not only in profit because students left a little bit extra, so they didn't have the right amount, but it had a profound effect on the whole school community. Because the shop was a signal that the staff were really trusting the young people, the students, to be honest, these, all of the relationships between students and between students and staff became deeper, more connected, and honesty became a real core norm within the school environment. This was so successful that over 30 other schools in the area have also now got honesty shops. So then very finally, the last big dimension is people. And this is really a call to prioritizing relationships in schools. And I had um, a conversation recently with um, Lynn from the WA Education Department about if I had a mod magic wand and I could just change one thing in schools to better support well-being, what would it be? I would tell you it is this. I would prioritize relationships, prioritize them more fully in policy, in practice, making space for relationship building on the timetable, making sure that building relationships is seen as good practice, as a measure of success. I think 
There's, I've never been in a school where relationships haven't been understood to be wholly important, but they're so rarely given the time and the resources and the priority they need. And it's just not fair to say to overwhelmed educators or make sure you get to know all the students, but we're not actually going to like factor that in in any official way. So this is about making sure that we get, we really sort of factor in time in the day to say hello to other people, to greet them. Um, getting to know all of your students can feel like a sort of formidable, almost ridiculous task if you work in a high school, but it doesn't take a huge amount to start to get to know people by saying hello, learning their name, asking them how was their weekend. It doesn't always have to be deep and meaningful. It just has to be connecting and real and authentic. So this is all very well, but we need to give it priority. And on top of that, I think it's really important moment as we sort of start to draw this talk to an end to say that it's very hard to be calm, to be able to co-regulate emotions, to be supportive, to be accepting of young people if you yourself as an adult are overloaded, overwhelmed, stressed to the nines and can't wait to get home and have a glass of wine. It's tough. It's hard for me to be lovely to my own children when I'm feeling stressed and overloaded. So this is a final really big call to prioritise staff well-being in our schools, but not in a tokenistic way. So having yoga day as PD to start the year or having like, you know, drinks on Friday night, these can be really, really nice ways in which we um, enjoy uh, each other's company and, and staff enjoy each other in the school. There's nothing wrong with these, but they're really tokenistic in terms of being getting to the heart of day-to-day -day well-being. Day-to-day -day staff well-being has to be about supporting staff voice. So making sure that in your staff meeting, you're managing risk so that everybody feels they can say what they think, even if it's not the popular opinion. It's about prioritizing authentic, supportive relationships between colleagues, between different silos in a school, between leadership and staff, between leaders. And it's about giving staff an opportunity to have their competencies supported so they don't just feel criticized, but they feel that they're growing and learning. Go to the Positive Schools Conference when you can. And in your school, have peer support. Make sure that you have reflective, positive feedback of each other and opportunities for appreciative growth. So I've nearly sort of come to the end. And I think that maybe as we sort of reach the end of this journey of really sort of coming to grips with thinking that we want to sort of build well-being in the spaces between us and the quality of the relationships we have with our entire school context. And we can do this by thinking about those domains. So for all of you thinking, well, how do I begin? What, what should I do first? This is really where my interest lies now. And this is gonna be what contextual wellbeing number two will definitely be focused on. But, but now I wanna really say, I suppose three things to, to sort of finish this session and firstly make sure you spend time and take time to really understand what contextual well-being means what a healthy context looks like for you what your measures of success are so set the scene well and encourage conversations to encourage buy-in 
No change happens without buy-in. Secondly, take time to do an audit of your own school context to discover the gems, the golden moments, the things that are working well that you can really grow and build on, which le leads me into my very final and third thing to say here, that I really do believe, and I found in every place that I've been, there will be beautiful gems of wonderful things happening. There'll be those teachers that have incredible relationships with students. There'll be strategies that work really well to support student voice. There'll be little sort of moments where the most struggling students suddenly had a sort of leap forward, got engaged and felt confident. It's about uncovering these moments because those gems will be there in your classrooms, in your staff rooms, in your whole school community. And our job now is to broaden them, to build them, to give them priority so that they shine a light on everyone. Okay. Da -da. Thank you very much. Um, and welcome back, Maggie. Whoa, I've got some fabulous questions to ask you, but can I just throw a couple of my own? That's one of the priorities of being co-host. I go first. Okay, so one of the things I think gets in the road still is that um, it takes so long um, for our school systems to move from behaviourism right, to understanding what you're talking about, because it's still embedded, isn't it? We've yeah. got to punish those kids whose behaviour is unacceptable, rather than recognising that that may be a stress response, that may be a response because the child hasn't got the capacity to make a better choice, do you know? And then you and I both on the same page of, um, you know, overloading the rewards and the certificates. Do you think that this is one of the challenges, why it's hard for us to bring this in? because that's so deeply embedded into our yeah, system. Absolutely agree with you, uh, totally. I, I think that that we have to sort of, well, I, I often say it's about moving from Old Testament ways of doing things <laughs> to a New Testament approach. And yes, I think it's very easy to get caught up in justice and tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye type mentality. You know, if someone does something wrong, they must punish, do something right, they must be rewarded. Yeah. Um, as opposed to understanding it's not, our job is not to control students. It's not to garner sort of some sort of like controlled judgmental obedience. It's rather to support independent thinkers, self-directed young people who make good choices when we're not around. And, yeah. and that is about helping young people to have their needs met. It's about building quality relationships. And the more that we rely on, on sort of those outdated mo models of justice and punishment and reward, the less we're going to focus on quality relationships. And in that, I'll also say, and I know you agree with me on this, Maggie, because we've spoken about this before. I think it's so important that every educator arrives every day at school knowing that even that kid that pushes all your buttons and drives you totally insane is doing their best. Absolutely. <laughs> they're not turning up to deliberately choose those moments. No. And it's about, but they don't always know the best way to do that, or they might be yeah. excluded or angry or not upset, or they, and we should constantly let people reset, try again, try again, hold our belief that young And kids. I think that that also applies to our kids, you know, the neurodivergent kids, kids who've experiencing trauma. Yeah. We know they've got less in their nervous system to be able to, before they can have a tipping point or a meltdown. Okay, second big question, do you think, you know, because I taught in the dark ages um, and we had time 
uh, we didn't have the digital technology that was there. Do you think it's harder for us also to develop those authentic relationships when they're spending so much time in our classrooms interacting with a screen? Oh, such a good question. So glad you answered it. And I have to say that all of the schools that I have worked in depth with in the last year, so it's about sort of six, seven schools, I have had the same issue has come up in, in primary schools as well as secondary, in that students, but especially in secondary, are spending huge amounts of time on technology in classrooms. So yeah. we've sort of advocated for and shouted for that phones to be banned in schools, and that's now finally happened across Australia. Hurrah. But nonetheless, everyone's got this sort of device in the form yeah. of an iPad, iPad. And one, even if the students are actually working on what they're supposed to be working on, they're still disconnected from the class because they're yes. with the screen. Relationships. But more than that, every student that I've spoken to has told me they've been in classes, some say every class, where there are students at online shopping, you know, watching a bit of succession, mm. messaging friends. <laughs> Who knows? Absolutely. It's endless. Gaming, yeah. that's popular amongst boys. It's all yeah. sorts of things. So I think we have to ask, you know, are, is the way that we are supporting technology use in schools actually yeah. the best way? Yeah. Is there something we could be doing differently? Um, Maybe I also love that, you know, as you explored through those programs, how, you know, the evidence was quite different to the intention. And, you know, some of the things you talked about that not only the physical environment, but something that can reach the most vulnerable students We've had huge shifts in school environments where the school, um, and often it's the PN, the parent body, does up the toilets, yeah. right? Let's have the most beautiful, loving environments to go to the toilet because the worst place in the whole school is usually the toilet. And what that does, it picks up something in all students because they all tend to use it or they get the therapy dogs in. And, you know, we've got students turning up because the dogs are there. Like, you know what you say? Again, sometimes that what moves that sense of, you know, there's something really welcoming here that you feel this is a place I belong now instead of being a place I don't. So well, I'm going to dive into a couple of other questions yeah, if that's, that's all right. You do. Just to reflect on that point, I think yep. those things, it's funny because John Marston, I remember him saying that at, at one of the conferences, um, saying, yeah, they check the toilets out if you're going to start in a new school. But I think that, that it, it sort of signals that you value the students in, yeah. a, in a sort of bigger way than in terms of their performance, doesn't it? And that yeah. value leads to status, leads to inclusion. Yeah. Connection. Yeah. I I went to a school in the um, uh, remote western New South Wales at one point and we were, I was there a little early and they said, oh, you can go to the staff room. And I went to make a cup of tea. And there were no tea bags. And no coffee. And I went, whoa, you had to bring your own. And I thought, whoa, whoa, okay. <laughs> it didn't It didn't give me that sense that there was a lot of, uh, um, you know, warm, fuzzy environment. Okay, so we've got one question um, that a person's asked, and that is why do you think contextual wellbeing is so hard to implement in Australia particularly? Because you're one of ours and you do a lot of this. Why? Why is it so difficult? Um. Well, I don't think it is difficult per se. In fact, it's actually very grounded and practical and, you know, you're, you are the common sense queen. I think it's very common sense in many ways. The difficulty is more in um, that it challenges um, historically deeply embedded ways of um, 
of education, of the patterns of education. And many of those have actually, well, I say deeply embedded, many of the ways that we try and support behavior actually come from the 1970s. Um, partly the self-esteem movement, which was so horribly misfired, this sort of belief that we just tell everyone they're great and they will feel great. Yep. That's why we have the prize in every layer of the parcel and give everyone a ribbon. Which I can tell anyone no. Oh, well, that puts more focus on outcomes and all less. That's a disastrous idea. Yep. Coupled with that, psychiatric hospitals developed token economies during the 70s and 80s. I know because I was nursing in one of those psychiatric hospitals in the 1980s. And it was a way of trying to control and manage patient behavior that was moved into schools and has become so deeply ingrained. We're still doing it now. We're still having jars of marbles on, on tables and things. So these methods of sort of trying to control behavior have been around because of um, historical sort of movements that were so unsuccessful, but nonetheless, they sort of mm. held and, and change is challenging. So yeah. even when it makes sense, change is challenging. Yeah. Um, but that's why you need to start with these conversations um, and thinking about what's actually working in your school. And, and I have to say, I'm just, I will stop talking a sec, but I have to say that I feel like five years since this book has been out and maybe sort of like 20 years since I've been talking this message. And it's only really in the last couple of years there's been a sort of real acceleration of schools getting on board with this. So I feel we're sort of, re we are reaching a critical point where it's suddenly seen as this is what we need to do if we want to be a leader and this is actually worth taking the risk over. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And I love that concept of forced competition virtue, virtue you know, giving options around that again. Um, and I do, you know, like... <laughs> I love that whole notion that you said, what are the messages around the school environment? You know, and that was, I ended up creating some posters that were all about enjoying childhood and enjoying learning because I wanted to change the, just the uh, trophy cabinet. Now we had one question that said, do you think that when they have those rewarding character strength and kindness that we're actually, it's kind of a counterintuitive for those who aren't capable. What, what are your thoughts about that rather than just academic outcomes? <laughs> Well, I'm not a fan of character strengths. Um, I'll say that very clearly. Um, the, the problem with character strengths, and I know that there's a sort of, a, I, I would just clarify, I think strength-based feedback, yeah. looking at what's working for a child, yep. bringing out and building and putting the focus on how they can engage with their learning because it's working is a yep. great thing. But character strengths, in my mind, are ways of judging um, how a person behaves or experiences the world in according to a sort of on a, on a hierarchy of positive to negative and that's uh, challenging in itself because it's sort of negating the power of context there is no way of being or behaving that isn't a strength in the right context you know yeah. so for example if if um if i just sort of lost something really important to me and i'm really tearful and distressed that's a really healthy way to be that's a strong way to be because it's appropriate in that context mm -hmm. um so i don't like the idea of characterizing any sense of how we are according to a strength or a weakness and i don't like the idea of putting people in a box and saying oh this is your personality much better to say what sort of behaviors and attitudes would really enhance this context what can we bring to the context rather than who are you as a person um, we had a good question about social norms, you know, um, that 
what happens in a in schools that have got very different cultures that the social norms can be a, can be difficult for the staff to be able to consolidate into something that they can follow what are your thoughts about that well uh, yeah another really good question and so cultures vary and, cult and normative approaches to education vary across cultures absolutely and i think you know simply you could say i think this is one of the reasons it's so important for a school to understand its own context and to understand what its own measures of success are, its own strengths and its own way of doing things. Real difficulties can come when you get clashing cultures within a school environment. And, you know, my mind goes to one school <coughs> I've been working with in Hong Kong, who have a lot of Chinese educators and a lot of international educators and are really struggling to find that cultural balance. I think that the most important thing we can do is find our similarities. Yeah. We can celebrate our differences, but we become connected because of our similarities. Yeah. And we are more similar than different, to be honest. We are more similar than different. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what culture you're in or what way you, you experience life, you still have your same three core needs. You still want a, a voice. You still want healthy relationships. You still want to feel you're progressing. You still need to belong and be engaged in life to have that sense of well-being. Now, can we turn the light to staff well-being? Because we know that... You know, teacher burnout is, is a, you know, a fundamentally worrying state and that um, teachers are walking away. They've just done it. And we know, I, you know, I kind of like Daniel Pink's three things to do with um, what motivates us, you know, because the first one is, are we doing, are we, are we working in our area of mastery? And so many teachers end up being put into different areas or wrong subject areas and expected to still deliver really well. So that's one of the things. And sometimes what they had that was really, um, you know, it gets to be changed, doesn't it? You know, the next curriculum change means you've got to be doing something different. The second one, of course, is that whole having a purpose and a sense of purpose. And I've had teachers saying to me, it's just so much harder to engage digital natives. It's so much harder. We've got more behavioural issues because, as you've already explained to start with, many of them are struggling with anxiety and, and more issues than we ever had before. And it's like, I can't get them into the space for, you know, really fantastic learning. Number four on Stuart Shanker's, you know, calm, focused, alert with lots of dopamine. And then the third one is we steal teachers' autonomy and choices. We mandate still. So what are your messages using this beautiful model that I love, other than getting the best coffee you can and this tea as you can and, a, you know, at least the occasional bicky jar, what else can we what else can schools be looking at in terms of supporting teachers, um, you know, using your model? Okay, well, um, absolutely. Just, you know, big, big question. I, you know, in an, I can task of that in an idealistic way and maybe a more slightly more real world way. So in an idealistic way, I think fundamentally we need to make teaching higher status as a profession. Thank you. Full stop. And yeah. it's amazing, you know, like you look at, say, surgeons who... Yeah. Obviously, yeah. they earn huge amounts of money, but they work so damn hard and deal with so much stress and they still feel okay because they feel really valued and they have really high status. Um, and so in that sense, I don't know that the answer is trying to let more and more people into teaching with less and less or bringing students in without, you know, because we can't find anyone. It's almost about going the other way, making it should be a lot harder to get to teaching. Teaching should be, being a teacher should be like it being a GP or the lawyer. It's a really highly respected profession and we need to give it the respect it deserves. Yeah. In a more, I say realistic because, you know, one thing is, a, is a lifelong political 
to paint and I could, you know, I can advocate for these things, but they won't happen tomorrow. More immediately, it's about firstly talking to your staff about what aspects of their life within their own school community bring them their greatest source of well-being. And undoubtedly, many will say the positive relationships that they have with others. So within, depending on the context of the school, they might say other things. It might be how leadership is structured. It might be yeah. that they have some autonomy in the classroom. It could be all sorts of things. And then ask them, well, what's most challenging? What, what are the things most difficult for you? And this, again, gives you huge insight. It might be how um, departments are structured. It might be timetabling. It might be that the measures of success of the school don't seem to fit at all with what they how they've been told to support young people in the classroom. So really having those conversations can then lead to also what I like to do when I talk to staff is I say, okay, you know, we've got a good sense of what really matters and what might be problematic. Let's pretend we've all like passed out for three years and then you walk into your school and it's perfect. It's everything you want it to be. And you just want to be there and teach there and you love being there. What's new? What's different? And then from that, start thinking about, okay, where do we need to head? I think leadership is is huge in this because yeah. you have a uh, a leader who absolutely gets this. They drive that. You know that's going to change a school culture. And and there are times that um, the teacher who's the, uh, what do we call them, the, the noisy wheel, you know, that is saying, hang on, this isn't okay. And you get that message, this is how we've always done it. Can I just share my metaphor that I share when I was working in schools around, you know, surviving teaching long-term? And that was to use the metaphor of taking your lunchbox to school with your sandwich, which is very healthy and probably gluten-free for some, but the <laughs> apple, you know, and maybe something, you know, delicious to get you through the day, even if, but what you come home with, and this is also what influences us and you're doing the same thing is our relationships. So that all, if all I bring home to those I love the most is the crust and, a, and an apple core, then you will run a risk of, of absolutely burning out and that if you can wrap a Tim Tam and foil <laughs> and leave it in your lunchbox and don't eat it at school because you do need to be able to bring you know the best part of you if possible home to those you love the most even if it's you know even if it's a dog because that we know that drives that right if I haven't got anything for those you know that that's because we're social beings and um, I had one other one other little message in here that I wanted to bring up. Um, um, someone says attachment styles can affect how effective we are with different students. So are we preparing them at university for these new shifts that we're aware of that um, certain teaching styles, um, you know, some of our children um, may need different sensory kind of considerations and accommodations are we are we teaching that so that they're even better prepared? Helen, do you know that yet? Um, well, I, I think that for a lot of students, uh, it's a massive shift to go to university. And certainly if you look at mental health in tertiary students, that's a whole topic in itself. It's, not, it's pretty challenging, um, especially nowadays. Our understanding of university, what it is to be a student, certainly changed since my day. Um, in my day, it was just mm. being a student was what counted Whereas yeah. now it's, a, it's very much, again, that outcome focus and it's less connected, yes. um, it's more online, there's yeah. less lectures um, and beautifully social, lovely people go to university and struggle to make good connections with others. Mm. So I feel that 
by supporting contextual wellbeing, which is fundamentally supporting self-determination in every member of the community, you're supporting them in a way that is going to enable them to be resilient during the challenges of university mm -hmm. whereas if we're too sort of controlled yeah um and judgmental and and sort of like telling everyone what to do and not focusing on self-determination that's when they're really going to crumble when they do get to university and suddenly yeah. they have to be independent yeah. self-directed and it's tough and it is tough so and um, does, yeah and does it, do you think that's also the um kind of what you're saying and also what we're finding is why we're getting so much um you know school reluctance um school refusal or school can't is because we do need a change yes we need to make the environment safer for everyone and and relational safety if we're not working on that because it's not a priority because we're still prioritizing grades and marks and yes. pieces of paper and accountability um it, that sounds like an impossible thing to change. Are we just the only optimist in the world that can see that's possible? <laughs> no, I, I, I hope not. No, I wouldn't be doing what I did if I believed that. Not at all. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting what you say, though, because school refusal is, is one of the most sort of like biggest concerns, I'd say, of schools at the moment, and not just school, refusal, school reluctance and anxiety about being at school. Um, I think in, in part, um, anxiety in young people is at an all-time high, and that's mm -hmm. going to play out in all sorts of ways. Yep. But beyond that, and this is my own theory, so this is, I haven't got any evidence. Throw it out there. This, but I wonder if um, a lot of the time spent out of the classroom during the pandemic has yep. actually given people, given young people, and their families an opportunity to stand back from the school context and see it for what it is it's like the fish yeah. doesn't see the water when it's in it but you know if you take it out of that it's different water it, it sort of can see what's going on and i i think that maybe an awful lot of the inequities and the issues of school context are now come into view much more clearly for a lot of young people thank you so much now as we wind up tonight can you what are you what are you up to next I'll let you I'm I'm working on my I thought it was my last book was the last one so I'm secretly working on my next and final book my 10th and final so um what are you up to Will you tell me about your book first what's your 10th oh well I decided it sits beautifully on what you started with today and that um that we we can't get our teens to see people to help them with these challenges of you know the normal bumpy bits of adolescence so I'm writing a book for parents to empower them to know they can do so much more to be called help me help my teen oh my gosh well with three teenage daughters yeah I'll send you a copy but I don't right think you'll need it <laughs> write it quickly that's right absolutely and um well that's good and I'm well for me I'm really enjoying working more in depth with schools and helping them to really understand their context and to build that in a way that feels appreciative and energized and enthusiastic. Um, I'm writing busily. Um, so we both are. Yeah, when I can. Context so contextual wellbeing part two. And yeah, so taking I love it. I love it. And thinking about, okay, so what now? And how do we yeah. actually make this work? And if, you know, um, I'm not gonna be in your school, but at least you could get this, you could have a, use it as a framework. Yeah. And, love it and positive schools i can't not yes. mention that yes. getting ready so we had positive schools in queensland earlier this year but we've still got three up and coming to go in um starting off in sydney 
in October, then uh, to Melbourne in November, and then finishing my home state of WA also in November. So, and oh, I'm doing a three conference workshop on motivation about yep. talking about competency as ever. Lots of lovely people on board, including Tim Cope, who's also in my cartoon picture. Oh, nice, <laughs> yes, I remember that. So, um, I and I just like to. Um, Apologise to everyone if we didn't quite get enough of the questions in, but I, I think you'll agree with me that she stirred you up. So I, I really have to avoid going to positive school conferences because I get so excited. I want to go back in the classroom and yeah, that, that wouldn't work. So can I thank you again for everything you're doing, um, for stoking the fire for, for all of the educators all around the world and to thank everybody for participating um, being a part of this uh, whenever you do it and just know that we absolutely I've got your back we value every single thing that you do out there in the role of education and try not to leave but do take care of yourself as well absolutely thank you so much Maggie for joining me um, it's been great to see you and and to have you join this session thank you to everybody and yes. questions we didn't get around to please when the recording goes up feel free to ask then or just contact me um, I'm always contactable but thanks again have a great day, everybody and I'm sure we'll both see you soon in some yay take care bye, bye.